0: Okay, today's October 29th. It's Wednesday, and uh, this is our last service in October. So I probably should have taught on Halloween, but we are in the New Testament tonight, Matthew 15, continuing our series in Matthew. And tonight's title is Blinded and Paralyzed by Paradigm. So if you're taking notes, we're going to be in Matthew 15, and this is Blinded and Paralyzed by Paradigm. Paradigm, P-A-R-A-D-I-G-M, Paradigm. It's basically a pattern of being locked into something. All right, kind of the thought that we're going to expound on tonight is that we should have a desire and there's a need for us to question why we do certain things. We need to look at our motives. Are we doing things because we have an undying love for Jesus? Are we doing them just because it's the way we've always done it or it's the way we were taught? And the reason for that, as you're going to see, tonight kind of one of the key Scriptures is Matthew 15:6. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, and indeed most of Israel had nullified God's commands They would set them aside for their own traditions. I couldn't think of any statement that better summed up the church today than that. And we're going to explore that idea. First thing we want to do, though, is kind of read through the chapter so we can all be familiar with it. As much as I'm able, every Wednesday we're going to be in Matthew until we finish it. So that will give you all an idea of how to study ahead. Uh, I think this Sunday we're going to cover Josiah's life, too. So... Trying to give y'all a good mix of the old and the new. Anybody know who Josiah was? King of what? Judah. There you go, Papa. And uh, he was unique, you know, unlike any other king. So, yeah, that ought to be a good message. So, starting in Matthew 15, 1, it says, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition Of the elders. They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the commands of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God, he is not to honor his father, with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. I've been quoting Isaiah twenty nine thirteen for a long time. That's what that passage is. Because for the most part, When you run into people that call themselves Christians, indeed for some portion of my life I definitely fell into this category, we learn to say the right things. We learn to pass ourselves off as Christians. Oh, Jesus is Lord. We believe in Romans 10, 9 and 10. You know, we know the right things to say. But it's just lip service. There's no real action in it. So we're going to examine this passage tonight and we're going to look at how it might change our lives and how we might more properly view things. Starting uh, in verses 1 and 2, it says, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? This is not an uncommon question. You know, why is it that you guys don't do what our church teaches? You know, uh, I remember sitting in front of a a Baptist church leader who I asked about things that were outside of the traditions of the church, things that Baptists just don't do. He said, well, hey, you want to stay Baptist. He didn't address at all whether or not it was scriptural, didn't address at all whether or not it was something that was pleasing to God, He basically answered me, no, let's just stick with the traditions of our forefathers. Well, first thing we want to do is look at what their tradition was. And this one had to do with washing hands. If you will turn to Mark 7, the parallel account of this explains the tradition a little bit, and then I'll kind of expound upon that. Matthew, Mark. Hang a right and go a few chapters. And uh, this would be Mark 7, uh, verse 3. The Pharisees and all of the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the traditions of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Is there anything wrong with washing dishes? Is there anything wrong with washing your hands? Not at all. In fact, you know it's pretty good hygienic practice, right? The problem is the Pharisees were not doing this because they simply wanted to have good hygiene. In fact, this is a part of what the Pharisees considered to be oral law. The tradition goes like this. Moses on the mountain was given commands to write down that God told him. The Jews said Moses also was given commands that were not to be written down. How convenient, right? And they were passed down from Moses to Joshua to each of the judges, from the judges to the kings, and survived into Israel. When the Talmud was assembled, does anybody know what the Talmud is? Jews read the Torah... They, uh, many read the Kabbalah. Many read the Talmud and the Mishnah. These are basically a Jewish commentary on the Bible. But the problem with the Talmud is it's an assembly of what they call oral law and most Jews hold it to be the same level as Scripture because they say it's God's law. It just wasn't written down. This is not all that different than our Catholic friends, that hold their traditions of the church to be equal with Scripture, that will tell you Scripture in itself is not enough. It needs the traditions of the church to be properly interpreted. Does that sound familiar to anybody? I know it does to you, Mandy. You were with me in Lafayette when we first kind of mold through all of this. Well, these traditions that were handed down, here's the idea in this hand-washing thing. The idea was that everything around them was so spiritually filthy, but of course them, that they couldn't consume anything without first purifying it or they would be defiled. The food was spiritually nasty. The cups, the dishes, basically they were the most righteous thing that was around. And so they couldn't let anything get in their body without being purified as it was their thinking. Can you see how that could be a little self-centered? See how that could cause you to be a little bit egotistical? The reason that Mark wrote about the marketplace, who was in the marketplace? All the foreigners, you know, all the Gentiles, all all the people. There might even be Romans there. We Jews who are so holy, we Pharisees who are the holiest of the holy Jews, might have been in the marketplace and touched something that one of those Gentile dogs touched. So we can't go eat meat then and put that meat in our bodies or we will be unclean. Jesus, why don't your disciples hold to the same teachings? Why don't they uphold the traditions of the elders? Now, put in that light, you know why Jesus. Jesus didn't do it on purpose. You know, you remember the Pharisees were far too holy to associate with people of low reputation? You know, they said, if Jesus knew what kind of woman this was touching him, Surely he wouldn't allow it, you know. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, addressed them. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? Jesus wasn't too holy to be close to lepers. He wasn't too holy to be close to whores. wasn't too holy to eat in the home of a tax collector. The Pharisees were too good for everybody. Now, if that doesn't resonate with you, it ought to. Because that's where half the church is. You know, oh, go over there. Those people smoke, you know. What do you mean go eat at their house? They drink. You know, what do you mean you were on a cruise with those people and they danced? Yeah, I mean, can you hear that coming out of the mouth of religious people? What kind of Christian is that? I saw him over there with them and they were in a bar. You know, all these things as if the outward environment corrupts the individual just by walking in the presence of it. You know, have you ever met somebody didn't want to go to a hospital because they were scared they'd get sick? Well, that's how many Christians walk through life. They don't want to touch anything that's unclean because they're scared it'll get on them. When the truth is, we're supposed to be a catalyst. We're supposed to be that thing which makes others around us clean. You remember the little commercials where you put all the stains in the jar and then they put DD7 in in the end and it cleans it up? It didn't take the stains out. It made the stains clean, right? That's what we're supposed to be. So the idea being that they were so spiritually superior and everything around them was so filthy that they had to purify anything. In fact, one rabbi mentioned in the Talmud, and I don't know this guy. I only know this from reading commentaries because, you know, I I confess I'm not a scholar of the Talmud any more than I'm a scholar of any other cultish material. You know, Uh, this rabbi's name was Joseph, J-O-S-E-S. He equated eating without washing your hands as being the equivalent of adultery. In his mind, there was no difference. Do you see how they raise something very trivial to a level of extreme importance? But don't we do that all the time in our churches? We take scriptures uh, an elder or uh, a deacon must be uh, an elder, must be the husband of but one wife. Now that scripture clearly to any honest person reading the text means one wife at a time because it's speaking to a people who were allowed to marry more than one and the example for the church was one wife to one husband. That was the example for the leaders. But people like David, people like Abraham, people like Solomon, you know, throughout the world, excuse me, had more than one wife. The example for the church was to be one husband one wife we take that scripture we elevate it to a status that it was not intended for number 1 and then to be very pious in our churches and show everybody how righteous we are none of our leadership has ever been divorced you know and that pastor he's been divorced so he's in adultery you know always condescending towards others always raising you up so that you have the outward appearance of holiness Or how about some of the other churches that are more like us? Some that are tongue-talking, that prophesy, that the Holy Ghost moves in. But if they saw one of you women in here in shorts or pants, oh, Jezebel's in here, you know? She's wearing the clothing of men. Now, these capris over here are no more man's. If I wore that, I would be beat up in a day, okay? That's not men's clothing. But they would take a scripture out of the Old Testament that says that men ought not wear women's clothing and women ought not wear men's clothing and say, oh, this is sinful. Or it shows her form. It might might cause people to lust. You can cover people in burlap sacks and they'll find a way to lust. You know, I mean, it's it's all proportional. You know, if you think looking at somebody's ankles is taboo, it will arouse the sinful nature. It it does. I mean, that's that's how Paul... Paul said he wouldn't know what coveting was if the law didn't say don't covet. So, I mean, that's how that works. I was one time at this very large national, largest ministry in the world at one time. Uh, campus was jogging around the campus, and this one is famous for having had a major fall in the sexual realm, the pastor and the church being associated with that. And I looked over, and in the ditch was this sign. It said, No Shorts. And just in an instance... I thought, because the sign was fallen and it was covered with mud, I thought, boy, that didn't help them much, did it? You can make all the external rules you want to address the outward part of a human being, and it doesn't help. Now, if the change is inward and begins to work outward, that's an entirely different story. You know, you don't have to tell a new Christian, stop listening to filthy music that God hates. Uh, Stop... Destroying your body with uh, life-altering chemicals. You know, don't look like a, a female if you're a male, don't, and vice versa. You don't have to tell them that. The Holy Spirit will tell them that if you teach them right principles. The Pharisaic approach and the way that most of the church does this is, no, we have church traditions. Men's hair ought not touch the collar. Maybe you shouldn't have facial hair. You ladies got to wear skirts down to the floor. You men, long sleeves. You know, that kind of stuff. You say, well, he's only talking about Pentecostals. No, I'm not. I mean, there are a lot of other churches out there that if you're not wearing a tie or you're not dressed a certain way, it's not appropriate. All in the name of holiness. So do you all see how this is relevant today? Well, let's move on from there then. This kind of trivial stuff was important to the leadership of Israel. And it was important for a reason. To ignore their traditions was to ignore their authority. See, when your authority is not rooted in the Spirit of God, when I say something strongly, hopefully it's because the Spirit of God is in me witnessing that it should be strongly. Strongly, That it should be strong. When I don't have the Spirit of God working through me like that, you know what's left? I make up rules. And those rules are a symbol of my authority. If the people are keeping them, then they're under my authority. If they're not keeping them, then they're not listening to me. So when the apostles, or in this case disciples, were not obeying the teaching of the elders, they were showing the elders didn't really have authority over them in that realm. Does that make sense? So that's why it was upsetting. Turn to Matthew 23. Jesus is going to address at another time this cup and washing kind of issue, and that's what we're going to look at in Matthew 23. Y'all there? It's Matthew 23, 23 is where we're going to start. And if you're taking notes, we're going to go through 28. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. You know, you can pray really piously over your meal. You can stand up in Piccadilly and impress everybody with your prayer. You can dress beautifully as to get attention for yourself. I can wear one of those ridiculous cardinal outfits that that church wears. Get a big ring that shows I'm married to Jesus. Right. Have people kiss it. Drive up in a special car. All ceremony, pomp, and pageantry, and just be as filthy inside as could possibly be. Listen how, how Jesus says that. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way on the outside you appear to people as righteous. But on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. There are people that claim to be Christians. The Bible calls them goats. They look a lot like sheep, but you know they're not by their behavior. The Bible says you will know them by their fruits. They come to you as sheep, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Now, that's easy for us to apply to everybody else. We need to make sure we don't fit any of those categories. Don't devour people that are around you. That's not fitting for to be a Christian. What this is getting at, though, is a show of outward holiness. You know, an effort to let everybody know just how righteous you are. I mean, in the evangelical world, this would be carrying around your Bible and your suit and announcing yourself as a pastor all of the time but inwardly have no more love, compassion, or mercy than a man on the moon. Y'all know it exists every day. I mean, I remember a guy told me, you pray, son, I pray for a living. You know, I mean, could just be a figure of speech, but in his case, I knew it wasn't. You know, he was telling the truth. He was hired. It was a job to him. I said, why don't somebody else do it? I'm tired. It's, it's work. It's all, I'm off. It's quitting time. You know, how disgusting. I mean, that makes me want to vomit. It really does. We need to pay careful attention to our inside and the outside will take care of itself. I almost never in my ministry have ever told anybody their clothing was inappropriate. There have been one or two times where I asked another lady to talk to one of the girls because they didn't know. They were just naive and didn't realize. You know, I don't think I've ever had to do that with a guy. And watch, over time, the inward changes work their way outward. Preston Coles is one of the best examples I can think of of that. The guy was at some kind of mosh pit where they're baptizing people with syrup and it's antichrist attire and everything the night he was born again. And he was the designated driver. I mean, one day he'd been born again, but in love with Jesus. And Jesus was showing him everything around him and how putrid the world was. Just how filthy the things he had been involved in were. So he is totally born again. The next day he wakes up just in love with Jesus. And, you know, his eyes opened. And he's walking through a campus at LSU. And because he still has long hair and his clothing is still similar to the people he had been hanging around, people are yelling at him You're going to hell! You! Hey, you! You're going to hell! Why? Because the outward appearance didn't fit what they thought it ought to. This guy had been renovated. I didn't tell him to cut his hair. Nobody told him to cut his hair. Over time, he didn't think that that was the image he wanted to portray. So he did. I didn't tell him to throw away the kind of music he was listening to. Over time, he did. I didn't have to tell him to throw away his dope or quit selling it. The Holy Ghost did all of those things. It is wrong for us to give each other rules. And as a new Christian, I blew this. I blew this big time. I remember seeing somebody saved, born again, a fellow that I worked with. I went straight to his house and said, first thing we need to do is dump out all this alcohol. Well, today he'd have to come to my house and dump out the alcohol. You know, I put upon him a burden that God's Word doesn't put upon him. Honestly, that was the least of his concerns. But I mean, the point is, this is something that's natural to us. We like the appearance of holiness. We need to make sure that our holiness is genuine and from the inside. As we're examining this false appearance of righteousness, this outward show without the inward reality, let's turn to 1 Timothy 4. Y'all still with me? I know it's Wednesday night and it's late. But I think there's some good meat in here that we can get if y'all can hang on. Listen to these words. And it's easy to think of one church in particular. It's not really a church. It's a gigantic demonic organization that's got the world by the throat. I'm not sure that it's not the whore of Babylon in Revelation. I'm just being totally honest. But try to think beyond the most obvious and apply it to other situations. I mean, because it is just too easy. The other one looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, and I mean, you know it's a duck. 4.1 The Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. He said, well, you guys don't because you know this. But do you hear Christians or people who are at least close to the kingdom of God saying, we don't want to go to that church? He picks on other churches or other people. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy here. If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and good teachings that you have followed. I want to be a good minister. And so it's necessary for me to point these things out. When churches begin to add to the Word of God extraneous traditions that do not agree with the Word of God, something's wrong if we don't point it out. And isn't it ironic that Paul wrote this down, and there's a church today, the largest in the world, covered most in the media, you know, I mean, you can see something almost every night on it, that both forbids people to marry and orders them to abstain from certain kinds of food. Is that amazing? So why on earth don't people get it? Surely it's not because they're dumb. I mean, some of the most intelligent people I've ever met belong to organizations that have stupid practices. So why don't they get it? Because we've learned to set aside the commands of God for our own traditions. Now, the Catholic Church is the easy one to pick out. But what about all the other things? Have you ever heard, the, I know some of you have heard about the missionaries who go to Germany. They live in this house for a while. This old German woman wants to do something really sweet for them. I mean, the best thing she can do and she cooks pastries. And the pastries happen to have some alcohol in them. And the guy turns up his nose and says, Oh no, that pastry has more alcohol in it than I've put in my body in my entire life. I won't eat it. You know, did God say you can't eat it? No. But he was just too holy, too righteous to touch something so filthy when the Bible says if he had eaten it in thankfulness, it would have been clean. And was it more important that he not put that little bit of alcohol in his body than to destroy that woman who was trying to do something sweet? Shame on them. Those people learned better and praise God they did. But do we do that? You know, Would you embarrass somebody because they were smoking around you? I saw somebody get filled with the Holy Ghost exhaling smoke. You know what? I don't like it. Honestly, I I don't like smoke. I don't like it on my clothes. I don't like it around me. But I don't ever, not at any time, never will tell somebody not to smoke in my car or my house. Now that's my conviction. I'm not saying it should be yours. I'm just telling you. I'm not going to do that kind of stuff. I figure that there's nothing so unclean about them that they can't be around me. Now, we justify that kind of stuff in every way. I'm just telling you, that's, that's my uh, conviction. You hear from God, get your own conviction on it. How about 2 Timothy 3? Just hang a right. See if this resonates with you. That word actually resonate. I just can't say it right. So y'all ignore the G I keep putting in it. This is 2 Timothy 3, 1. conceited lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with them they are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires get this always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth one way that people put on a religious facade is to appear very studious, always studying. Maybe they graduated from seminary. Maybe they have a master's. Maybe they have a Ph.D. or a doctorate. I mean, you know, so surely they must know a lot about God and are holy. If they're a lover of pleasure rather than a lover of God, then no, they're not if they have a form of godliness, in other words, they look like somebody who would be godly, but deny the power of God, then they fall into this category. Now, you honestly apply that standard to the church. How many churches out there deny the power of God? How many tongue-talking churches out there deny the power of God? That's amazing, isn't it? It's so easy to point to the Pharisees and go, yeah, those Pharisees, they were like that. we got more Pharisees walking the earth today than Jesus ever confronted in His lifetime. Yeah, and most of us call ourselves Christians. Got the bumper sticker ministry going, the t-shirt ministry going, and would no more rub shoulders with a sinner than you know a man on the moon. Just wouldn't do it. We need to come down off of our high horses sometime, get in the trenches with, with the people where they are. That doesn't make you like them. It gives them a chance to see Jesus in you. You remember Elijah stayed with a woman? And when he stayed with her, uh, he prophesied to her that she would have a son. The son then later died. You remember how Elijah raised him from the dead? He laid on him, eyeball to eyeball, nose to nose, mouth to mouth, knee to knee, toe to toe, laid on top of him. Put him in his own bed and laid on top of him. After he prayed, the life that was in Elijah got on the boy, and he came back to life. That is the kind of ministry that God will honor. When you're willing to get eye to eye with the lost, nose to nose with the lost, you're willing to associate with people of low character that the life in you might get on them. That's ministry. That's evangelism. That's what Jesus did. The ultimate expression of it is when the God that created the very universe left his heavenly estate to put on a human suit and walk around like a human being. If he wasn't too good to do that, then how can we be too good to associate with people that might not do everything perfectly? Go back to Matthew 15. Y'all thought I forgot what book we were reading out of tonight, didn't you? Y'all don't wake up or Say something every now and then. I'm going to get discouraged and quit. 60% of the United States thinks they're going to heaven. That's amazing. That is amazing. There's something about the human condition that says, if I just follow a few rules, try to be a good person, I can live like hell all the way to heaven. And we measure ourselves by ourselves. And the Bible says we're unwise for doing it. Well, Eric, what assurance do you have that you're going to make it into the kingdom of God? Well, I'm better than her. You know? And you ask her, she says, well, I'm better than them. Measure yourself by yourself. Doesn't work, does it? And why do you break the... I'm sorry. Uh, back at verse 1. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replies, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. Did Jesus answer their question? Uh-uh. He wasn't concerned at all with what they thought about their traditions. Before he answers their question, he wants them to answer his. You're concerned about your traditions. I'm concerned with the very written Word of God. When you tell me why you're breaking God's written Word, I'll tell you why I don't pay any attention to your traditions. You know, Have you ever gotten caught in an argument with somebody over something foolish? They called it a matter of doctrine and it was really a matter of church tradition. Something like uh, whether or not you can have facial hair. You know? If you're a woman, don't have facial hair. But if you're a man, it's all right. That was supposed to be funny. You know, I mean, I've spent hours arguing with people about, you know, what it means for the Spirit to be in you or on you and what those prepositions are, are baptized, under the water, in the water, the water on you, you know, all of those things. And what it comes down to is, aside from what the Scripture says, they're going to stick to the tradition of their church. They're not interested in actually what the Scripture says. They're interested in proving the tradition of their church. And sometimes it is a debatable matter. And they can't, should not be able to force their tradition upon me. I'm going to do to the best of my ability. How about this one? Do you baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or do you baptize in the name of Jesus? Well, it's both ways in the Word. So why are you going to fight about that? Now I personally baptize in the name of Jesus, because it's how I saw the apostles do it in the book of Acts. But I can't go cram that down somebody's throat. And why would I want to? I'm more interested in seeing a changed person come out of the water instead of a wet sinner. If you can be baptized in the name of Jesus and at work instead of the name of Yeshua, you know, I believe God pretty much lets you slide if your heart's just right. You know? Jesus. Don't you think sometimes He goes, who? You know, are they talking about me? (laughs) Okay, these commands that Jesus said, that they set aside. You know, He says, and why do you break the commands of God for the sake of your tradition? And the first one, He says, is honor your father and mother. And the next one is anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. That comes straight out of the heart of their law. One is the fifth commandment. It's Exodus 20, verse 12. The next one is repeated quite a few times in the Bible, but it's best known for Leviticus 20, verse 9. And that's the one that says, if you curse your parents, you're put to death. Why was God so harsh about the parents in the Bible, how children should treat their parents? Anybody venture a guess? The way you treat your parents is a reflection of how you feel about God. That is the very first authority you ever have in your life that is God-ordained. Doesn't matter whether they're good or bad, they're your parents. And you should be able to honor them in the same way that you honor God. That does not at all mean that you take their word above God's. Doesn't at all mean that they're always right. Doesn't at all mean that they do things right. just means that you honor them and do not curse them. Part of honor, by the way, is be willing to take care of them. You know, other nations make fun of our nation. They, other people that don't understand America as not a Christian nation, criticize what they consider to be a Christian nation because we're the only ones that put our our parents in homes. Now, I met some parents I honestly think need to go in homes. I don't think that medically. Uh, the parents would be equipped to to care for them, but you know what every parent is fearful of their kids are going to put them in a home before it 's time right you know uh, Have you never heard a parent jokingly say you all better not put me in a home it 's because in our country that 's a real fear you know yeah puff says don 't put me in a home our treatment of our parents as a God-ordained authority gives insight towards the way that we really feel about God. Think about the way that God relates to us. How did He tell us to call Him? Father. Who's the only other earthly guy that's supposed to wear that name? Your Father. So that you should be able to relate to your Father as God. Now, most of our fathers dropped the ball. I mean, if you're thinking back and go, oh, well, my Father didn't teach me about God. If nothing else, you should learn from calling the man Father that you exist because of him. I mean, at the very core, it does witness about God. We call Jesus the Son to teach us about that relationship. How you treat your parents is a reflection of how you really feel about God. The first real problem that we come to with Jesus' little discourse here I mean, the first thing that should just jump out at you is Jesus says, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. But you say. You know, but's one of those words. And I think that the technical term for it is it's a, a conjunction. And it is a. I can't remember how to say it. A negative conjunction, but that's not how they say it. Negate. Yeah, it negates everything that's before it. And think about this sentence. All right, no, Nobody ever wants to hear this. You know, Mandy, I love you, but... What does that mean? It erases everything you just said. In other words, there's a condition. I love you, but... What Jesus just said to them is, You know God's Word says this, but you say... That's really the heart of what the word nullify means. It means you understand, but you set it aside. Shame on us to ever be in a position to say God's word says, but I say. Now, we don't usually willingly admit to that, but our actions do that sometimes. We know that if we don't forgive, we can't be forgiven. But we justify it any way that we can, don't we? But he hurt me. Mm -hmm. And you've hurt lots of people. What was the Pharisees' justification for this? They said, but you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God. He is not to honor his father with it. What kind of justification is that? What are they doing? The word says you've got to honor your father and mother. If you curse your father or mother, you should be put to death. But you say, now, if, how do you say it? If a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God. What are they doing? All right, well, y'all look dumbfounded. So in Deuteronomy 23, verse 21 through 23, we're not going to read it but you ought to write it down if you're taking notes. Basically, it's, it's ordinances about a vow. Uh, one place in the Bible, one of the other Gospels, they leave this word untranslated. It was called korban, and there's a lot of ways to spell it, so you just figure that out to the best of your ability. But basically what the Deuteronomy Scripture teaches is if you make a vow to God, you better fulfill it because He won't hold you guiltless if you don't. Y'all can look that up some other time. So what the Pharisees are doing is trying to use the idea that if you made a vow to God to give a certain amount of money, you don't have to take care of your parents with that money. Think about this, y'all. Got a building campaign going on, right? How many of you will pledge $100 a month to help us build this, right? And they run their projections on it. Then that $100 that you've pledged, you need to feed your elderly father or your whatever relative. And the church teachers actually say, no, you're supposed to be a promise keeper. And you promised you would send this. We're counting on you. You dedicated this to God. You have to fulfill the vow. Now you're torn. Is it better that you should keep your word? and allow your relatives to suffer, or that you would take care of the needs of your relatives and be released from the vow. Which way should it work? Does anybody have any idea? This scripture is forever impressed upon my mind. Turn to Timothy 5.8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. They set aside the commands of God because it was self-serving for them to do so. Who benefited from these gifts dedicated to God? They did. Because if you dedicated your property, they received it. If you dedicated a certain number of alms, they received it. If you dedicated your fattened rams, they received it. So, of course, they they twisted the word to say, no matter what, you need to give. To hell with your parents, feed us. It's your duty unto God. Now, is that a lot different than what you hear on the TV? Send me your hundred dollars. God will send you seven hundred. If you have a crisis, a financial crisis... If you just don't have enough money to pay your bills, send me what you do have and God will take care of you because you sowed in faith. If that's not a manipulation of God's word, I don't know what is. Honestly, I don't want a dime of your money if you're not taking care of your immediate family. Now, I do believe God can do more with nine tenths of your income than you can do with ten tenths. But if you've got members of your immediate family that don't have shelter and don't have clothing, don't have food, shame on me if I'm taking your money. Now, you won't hear that preached just everywhere. But it's Phariseeism to preach it any other way. Well, we've got wailing and gnashing of teeth going on in the other room. Children's church. How about James 2? turn there. What time we got, by the way? Okay. We're nearing the end. James 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without your deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that. And shudder. It's not enough to believe that there's a God. It's not enough to give to your church. Your love for God must be expressed in every area of your life. And you know who it should be expressed to first? The members of your household. Because ministry flows from your household outward. Don't think that you're going to go love all the strangers of the world, win them all to Christ, if you've already alienated your own family. You have to start with your family and move out from there. That's why it's your obligation first to take care of your own relatives. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, it's interesting this word nullify. Turn to Mark 7 9. I met somebody one time that was in a church and this guy loved the Lord. But he both followed the dietary code in Leviticus and he also was so twisted with a misunderstanding of how righteousness worked that he followed all of the dress codes that the strictest holiness Pentecostal churches follow and get this, if he was driving to church, and there were a woman and her young children on the side of the road with a broken down car, would not stop to help them because he believed that was the devil's means of keeping him out of church. Now, let me ask you something. Is it more desirous to God for you to go sit and be fat and fed in a church or to act like a Christian and bring church to the outside. I was one time scolded by somebody who loved the Lord, just didn't think it through all the way, maybe had a little selfish ambition going on, for helping somebody roof their house on a Sunday. Well, I roofed their house on a Sunday because it was supposed to rain Monday. Everything they had would have been destroyed if we didn't roof it that Sunday. Now, you can go to church or you can do church. You know, I I prefer to be a doer of the Word. Mark 7, verse 9. And he said to them, you have a fine way. This is the same discourse, by the way. Just parallel account. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. That's what the word nullify means. Back to Matthew 15. We're going to read from the beginning and we're going to wrap this up here real quick. And why do you break the commands of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say... That if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God. I can't give it. I promise to God. So you just starve. He is not to honor his father with it. Thus, you nullify or set aside the command or the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You know, in the Bible, there is a proper use of the word nullification. In the law... In fact, in Numbers 30, verse 13. Let's go there. Y'all turn in there? Numbers 30, verse 13. This will help you understand really what they're telling God when they shove aside His law for their own. At first, this may seem to be a little unrelated. Bear with me. Numbers 30, 13. This deals with a wife who has made a vow to God without consulting her husband. It says, Her husband may confirm or nullify any vow she makes or any sworn pledge to deny herself. But if her husband says nothing to her about it from day to day, then he confirms all her vows or pledges binding on her. Why might a husband be able to nullify a vow or a pledge that his wife made? Come on. Y'all think about this. I love you, Mama. You're very swift. Because he's the head. And I know Dad was happy to hear that. Because he's the head of the house. Ultimately, as much as he should receive her input and a wise husband would, ultimately it was his decision, not hers. So if he doesn't know about it, he has the right to nullify it. Here's the principle. And this is not a husband-wife teaching. This is the principle. Only a higher authority can nullify... A vow to God. So if the Pharisees, you're confused, the husband is the higher authority. So one of his subordinates makes a vow. The husband, who is the higher authority, can nullify it. No, shouldn't have done that. She spoke impetuously. It affects more than just her. It affects me. I'm her head. So no, we're not going to do that. That's perfectly legal in God's eyes. But what the Pharisees were doing was they were nullifying God's vow. His Word, for the sake of their own commands. So in effect, they're saying, we are above God. We are a higher authority than God. Here's the problem. Churches that teach their tradition is equal to God's Word, it's not possible. One has to be higher than the other. Because when they contradict, somebody has to be right. And if your church tradition is held to be right and the Word of God not... You are nullifying the Word of God with your tradition. You are placing your tradition as a higher authority than God's. See, the great lie, I've got books on it in there. Patrick Madrid, uh, you know, a satanic Catholic apologist, wrote them. He says that they are of equal value. And when the Scripture seems to contradict the tradition, the tradition overrules it, or rather more properly interprets it. The problem with that is that places the tradition as a higher authority, nullifying God's Word. Can't do it. There is no authority higher than God's spoken Word. Except yeah, except the Vatican. Y'all understand what I'm getting at? Well, we, can't, we still, when we say, I know the Word of God says, but I just can't. I just won't. I just don't. We're doing the same thing. Go ahead and wear the little pope hat. You've become your speaking ex-cathedral. You've just declared yourself above the Bible. We've done it. I know we have. I've done it. I've heard a few of you in the room do it. It happens. So well, I know the Word of God says that, but I'm just really—you're going to nullify the commands of God for your own decision. We can't. We need to speak about the Word of God with reverence. We need to be careful when we say, I know it says, but. <laughs> I'm a trained salesman, and I've learned in negotiation never to use the word but. I don't ever, not in any conversation with a customer, ever use the word but. I say, and. <laughs> yeah. I heard what you said, and I think we ought to consider this as well. That's entirely different than the attitude that comes from but. I heard what you said, but... I just think it stinks. <laughs> you know. Does that make sense? Well, with God, it's not a matter of semantics, how you say it. It's a matter of the heart. And sometimes we even voice obedience, but inwardly, we're saying, I understand, but I am not going to do it. We can't. That puts us in Pharisee realm. Y'all with me so far? Or are you mad at me? I want to look at one proper use of nullification. This tickled me when I, I read this. First Corinthians one twenty-eight. After that, we have one scripture, and we're going to quit. Can y'all bear with me for two more scriptures? Y'all going to be sorry I got this little notebook. It makes me want to take notes. First Corinthians one. Start in verse 27 But God chose the foolish things of this world To shame the wise God chose the weak things of this world To shame the strong He chose the lowly things of this world And the despised things And the things that are not To nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Nullify means to set aside. You know what he's saying? He's saying he chose us who were lowly. He gave us his high authority so that we set aside those who claim to be somebody. He chose nobodies. He chose us who are lowly to set aside those who claim to be important. That's why Jesus was hard on Pharisees, but nice to prostitutes. That's why Jesus was hard on Pharisees, but easy on fishermen. He chose to nullify them with lowly things. See, they claimed that they were more important than God. At least their actions did. But the sinners came to Him, and they knew who they were. So God uses us to displace those who claim to be righteous. Now that's good. It may be Wednesday night, it may be late, but that is good. You need to grab onto it. If you don't get it now, read it later. That's worth dwelling on. He chose you to displace those who think that they're important. Next time somebody's coming down on you for your love for Jesus, you ought to think about that. He chose you to nullify them, to set them aside. You have a question? Have nullify means to set aside. So here it is. They're in power now. God chose us who are lowly to set them aside and we will take their power. The Pharisees took their word. They nullified God's. They set His aside and put theirs in authority. God is taking them, setting them aside and putting us in their authority. That's why humble fishermen stand before the Sanhedrin and are able to totally defeat in an argument these men of great learning because God was setting the men of great learning aside in favor of the weak and lowly things. That's why David was able to displace Saul. Okay, we're going to go to Isaiah 29 and we're going to close with that. This is what Jesus quoted, but we're going to start just a little before his quote. We're going to be in 29, nine. What was Sunday's message about? It's titled, Give Them... What they want, And the basic premise of the message was if you want wicked things, if you want deception, if you don't love the truth, God will give you so much that you can't be saved. If you want righteousness, He'll give you so much that you're glorified and live with Him forever. He gives people what their heart desires. With that in mind, listen to this. nine nine. Be stunned and amazed. Blind yourselves and be sightless. Be drunk, but not from wine. Stagger, but not from beer. The Lord has brought over you a deep sleep. He has sealed your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. In other words, they're being blinded. Okay? The people are drunk, but not from wine. They can't see. They can't hear. They're staggering, but it's not from beer. For you, this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. The Bible's just a book among many. And if you give the scroll to someone who can read and say to him, Read this, please, he will answer, I can't, it's sealed. Who could understand that Bible? Everybody's got their own interpretation. Or if you give the scroll to someone who cannot read and say, Read this, please, he will answer, I don't know how to read. Who could understand it? The Lord says these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. What God is saying in a nutshell is because people have placed their traditions above His Word, because all of their relationship is simply rules taught by men, what we do and don't do, it's as if they were drunk and staggering and couldn't see or couldn't hear. And God's going to do something amazing in their sight. He's going to displace them with the weak, the lowly, and the humble that are interested in a real relationship with Him. That's what that prophecy means. It's why He quoted it where He quoted it. He was talking to Pharisees who only were interested in rules taught by men, not in having a real meaningful walk with God. And he said, I'm going to do something amazing in your eyes. I'm going to cancel out the intelligence of these intelligent people. I'm going to cancel out the wisdom of these wise people. They're going to be drunk but not on wine. They're going to have eyes, but not see, and ears, but not hear. Instead, I'm going to take the weak, the lowly, the humble. Because these other people, they draw near to me with their mouth, but only their mouth. Man, y'all, that, that is half of the people that you will ever meet. You know, it's why only a few are going to be saved. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom. That's drawn near with the mouth. But only he who does the will of my Father in heaven will be saved. We need to make sure that our Christian walk never becomes simple paradigm. We go to church on Sundays. We go to church on Wednesdays. We don't curse. We don't smoke. We don't do all of these things. And therefore, we are Christians. Christians are not defined by what they don't do. They're defined by their actions, what they do. The fact that we do honor our parents. The fact that we do love people. That we do those things. Not what we don't do. There are people not all that far from here that think that they're Christians because they fit the mold of a paradigm. They have the outward appearance only. Inwardly, ravenous bones. I heard a preacher named David Ring. Guy, you might have heard of him. He had cerebral palsy preached a great message. It's called I'm Not Okay, You're Not Okay. shows up in a three-piece suit and as he's preaching, he says, I look pretty good, huh? And it's kind of funny because of his accent and stuff. You can't help but, yeah, yeah, you look good. And as he's preaching, he takes off his jacket and there's a three-piece suit so there's a vest, but you notice one of his sleeves has a stain on it. Then he takes off his vest a little later says, boy, I'm hot. And you find out there's a hole in his shirt under the vest. Then he Gets a little further and he takes off that shirt and you find out his undergarment is just nasty. Never been washed. The I don't know what you call them, the under t-shirt. We used to call them wife beaters. Yeah. Then before long, he's taken off his pants and you see that he's got on two different color socks and his toes are sticking out of one shoe. And what he was getting at is this is how Christians go to church every day. Pretty on the outside and inside. The more you dig towards the heart the worse and worse and worse it gets. We've deceived ourselves. We need to not do that. If we take care of the inside of the dish first, the out will take care of itself. But if we work on the outward appearance, just how we look to people, we fool ourselves. And really we're insulating ourselves from anybody going, you know, are you born again? Of course we're born again. We go to church three times a week. We do this. And never having been touched by God on the inside of the dish. Now, there's nothing wrong with tithing. There's nothing wrong with dressing nice. There's nothing wrong with going to church, but none of those things make you godly. The inside of the dish has to be clean and that produce in you those other deeds. Does that make sense to you all? Well, we'll do our best to apply that. Don't let yourself sit in the church your whole life and never get this. I mean, what could be worse than 20 years from now you wake up and go, you know what? I've heard all these messages and I never really... Made an inward change, grew up in a church, yeah I mean I did that. My parents were faithful to have me in a church from nine years old till eighteen, so for nine years, I heard messages and never was a Christian, but I had the outward facade down. I could quote what I needed to, I knew how to dress and play the part so much so that I even fooled myself. Well, we need to be smart, we need to wake up, you can go to hell that way. Also, when we take this real message to people, when we're willing to rub shoulders with people and not be Pharisees, you'll see the real people out there get saved. And that's what it's all about. Hey, Bill. Well, y'all stand up. We're going to pray. Yeah. Yeah, you can learn all you want to about Jesus, but if you don't learn to be like Jesus, what good is it?